You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. We are excited for our episode today. We've got Brian Zand with us. He is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian and his wife, Perry, founded the church in 1981. Brian is also the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of Loving God, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and Unconditional, The Call of Jesus to Radical Forgiveness and now the just released when everything is on fire faith forged from the ashes uh, brian welcome back to inverse podcast thank you drew it's a delight to be with you all you're good people <laughs> oh thanks bc mate um we are going to get to your new book but um i, I woke up and uh, pretty quickly had tears in my eyes this morning with the news around uh, julius jones and um i, I know uh, what I've caught so far, the day is just young uh, for me uh, here, but um, he, he won't receive the death penalty, uh, but they left it to last minute to announce it. And at the moment, there's still, as your Perry um, said, um, there's still so much work to do because he's still looking at life. Um, we just wanted to give you permission to, to reflect a little, um, uh, both on uh, updating us uh, about um, the details that I'm yet to know, but also theologically how you're processing mm -hmm. that, particularly as a, a pastor of a community in a context where um, uh, your nation still has this um, barbarous practice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just overflowing with thoughts. I mean, uh, Perry and I have been praying quite a bit about this. I mean, a lot. Um, I was just in Oklahoma City doing a prayer school Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, I spent time with people that were working most closely with the family and trying to prevent this. Uh, I, my friends, Brad Jerzak and Kenneth Tanner are on here with us, and they can bear witness that we're part of a consortium of people leading an in-depth study of the book of Revelation over about six months. And uh, I had to interrupt the program today because I, because I was very concerned and I was paying attention and I, I started to see that his, his sentence had been commuted, you know, that, that the execution was off. And it, but I kept waiting because I just saw a couple of them and I waited till I, I saw the AP. Okay. All right. Associated press. So I think this is a real deal. And I just, I just interrupted. I said, hold the presses. I've got to interrupt Julius Jones, you know, his, his execution has been stayed. And so uh, look, yeah, there's a whole lot more work to be done before we reach justice. But look, this is a big deal that because you can't undo an execution. Right. So mm. this is this is literally live to fight another day. I mean, literally. Right. And uh, and, and we haven't won enough of these. And so it, to me, it felt like a big deal. Yeah, it's, it's not the fullness of justice, but, you know, it's it, it's a big deal. You're right, though, Jared. America is 
occupies an outlier of barbarous nations that still practice this archaic thing called public execution, state-sponsored execution, the capital, capital punishment, whatever you want to call it. You know, this is something that the, that the Bible is constantly trying to lead us away from but the Bible is fully enmeshed in the story. So the Bible is part of the story. So, you, you know, if, if you want to just pick and choose, if you want to just find a verse in the Bible that'll give you so-called scriptural warrant for the practice of capital punishment, well, yeah, that's not hard to do. Uh, but that's not what we're supposed to do with the Bible. We're supposed to allow the Bible to lead us to Jesus and then we go from there, and then we have to completely understand everything in the light of the cross, especially capital punishment. Our Savior was a victim of state-sponsored execution that brings everlasting shame upon the institution. I mean, if, if the practice of capital punishment is capable of committing the worst sin, the worst crime of all, the crime of deicide, the murder of God— Maybe we ought to rethink it, don't you suppose? Um, and of course, the, the Christian church, from its inception, and once it began to engage in ethical issues and think about these sorts of things, was opposed to all forms of killing, including capital punishment, until it gets tangled up in empire there in the fourth century with Constantine and a conflation of, of Christian faith and imperial agenda that becomes Christendom, and then once again, um, capital punishment is brought back into play, and some would be even considered as um, compatible with Christian ethics, but um, that's only after Constantine and Christendom. Mm. Would you like me to, you want, you want to go into Genesis 22 now? I'm asking yeah, and, and maybe as a way of um, setting it up, I know Drew's about to ask you about the new book. <laughs> if we could go back to A Farewell um, to Mars, um, an earlier text, where you were um, so candid and made yourself so vulnerable in actually spelling out your journey that, you know, you, um, you're from a particular part of the world, formed in a particular way, and yep. um, that Constantinian uh, American white Christianity um, meant that there were a bunch of convictions that are so central to you now that weren't um, earlier um, as you started out on this journey. I was, um, and have referred people to lots, your section on um, uh, the abolition of human sacrifice in A Farewell to Mars, I, I thought was so strong, um, bringing together um, your love for René Girard in ways that are really accessible. I mean, you're like, you're a brilliant preacher. You, you have this ability to um, synthesise and make elegant what is often complex and academic um, and then do an altar call on the back end of it. <laughs> like, it's, would you um, would you take us uh, a little into what you set up there? Yeah, maybe I will go ahead and just let's look for a little bit at the scripture. I'm going to read a story that is very central to so many aspects of theology. It comes out of Genesis 22. Christians refer to this as the sacrifice of Isaac, which is really a, not an accurate title. It is the failed sacrifice of Isaac. Um, Jewish people refer to it as the Akedah, or the binding, the binding of Isaac, the, I, the, the Akedah. So I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read about the first, I don't know, 
I'm going to read maybe maybe as many as uh, 14 verses, it looks like. So let's BZ, did, but before turning to Holy Script, did, did you want to um, uh, do Bob Dylan's version first? Uh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but next time you see me coming, you better run. Abe said to God, where you want this killing done? God says, you can do it out on Highway 61. <laughs> there we go. By the way, Robert Zimmerman's dad was Abraham Zimmerman. All right. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his, son, to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there and we will worship. Then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Father, he said, here I am, my son, he said. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, as it is written to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Oh, what a, what a story. There's so much there. Where to start? Okay, let's start with Kierkegaard. I love Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard's a main influence in my life, but I think he gets this story wrong. One of his most famous books, Fear and Trembling, this is where he makes the move to, uh, you know, the night of faith that transcends the ethical, because we modern people read this story and we're scandalized by it. The idea that the gods would offer you, would, would ask you to sacrifice your firstborn son, one that you've waited a lifetime for. Well, that, that's... That's an anachronism. Um, this was part of the sacrificial culture of the ancient Near East. You sacrificed the firstborn that you might have future fertility. And so it, 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 may be, it may be poignant. It may be a little bit sad, but the gods are capricious and you have to do what they ask. 
Um, this story ultimately presents to us Abraham as, well, if Abraham is given to us as the father of monotheism, he's also given to us as the father of the abolition of human sacrifice. Um, human sacrifice, yeah, it really has been around from the beginning. We're scandalized by that too, and sometimes we try to cover it up, but it's there. Uh, it has to do with how the human species found a way of having, um, maintaining their, well, it's, it's the way that they prevented the all against all violence that can arise through mimetic desire. That is, we desire what others desire, it may be limited, and then it breaks out in all against all violence. The way that that is curtailed is that we agree without really knowing what we're doing, that that person there, that one is the guilty one. That's the witch. That's the problem. That's the curse. And so we come together and we unite around, well, we pool together our anger, our insecurity, our fear, our rage, and we project it with violence upon one who is the scapegoat. They are innocent, but the crowd agrees they are guilty and they are put to death. And for the time, it produces a unity within the tribe, within the community, within the city, within the polis. Uh, eventually, archaic societies learn how to ritualize this and we practice it over and over and over to maintain the unity. This lurks throughout the Bible as the origin of human sacrifice, but you have to know how to see it. Jesus, in John 8, when the way this text is arranged, what happens at first in John 8 is Jesus stops a stoning. Remember, they bring the woman caught in adultery. And uh, they said, Moses in the law says to stone such women, what do you say? And Jesus doesn't say anything because he knows that hit that immediately head on is just going to inflame it. So he, he stoops down, he writes on the ground, he doesn't say anything, but they persist because they've already metastasized into a satanic mob ready as a mob, as a crowd to kill this woman. Then Jesus says something that is divine genius. He says, all right, let the one among you the one among you, so he's breaking the spell of the mob mentality. Let the one among you who is without sin, he calls them into self-reflection. The one among you who is without sin cast the first stone. So you see how Jesus is breaking the spell of the mob mentality, and they have to think, okay, the one, the first, without sin, and beginning with the older ones, down to the younger ones, they drop the stones and depart. Then as the story continues, Jesus begins to call them to uh, real discipleship, and he calls them to know the truth that will liberate them. And they begin to push back and say, well, liberate. I mean, we're not slaves, are we? We're the, we're the, we're the children of Abraham. We're not slaves. Just, oh, yeah, you're, you're a slave. In fact, in fact, you want to do the desires of your father. And they say, our father's Abraham. He says, no, not really, because you are still possessed by this spell of collective killing, and you want to kill me, and you're moving in that direction even as we speak. If you were really, if you were really the sons and daughters of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? Abraham did lots of things. Well, what did Abraham do 
in regard to ritualized killing. Abraham put down the knife. A rabbinic way of understanding what happens at the Akedah, what happens on Mount Moriah, is that Abraham gains the revelation that God does not want human sacrifice, that God does not warrant human sacrifice, that human sacrifice is not a leap that transcends the ethical, that the night of faith can make. No, 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 it's not that at all. It's simply part of our archaic past that we need to let go of. And Abraham gets the revelation that God doesn't desire human sacrifice, and he puts down the knife, and it's mitigated to a ritualistic animal sacrifice, the ram caught in the, in the thicket by its horns. And so then, and then, come on, that's a step in the right direction, folks, to stop yeah. sacrificing people and sacrifice the animals instead. But if you stay on the journey that the scripture takes on, eventually that will be questioned. Does God desire ritual blood sacrifice of animals? Uh, well, I mean, the, the priests are going to say yes. Leviticus is going to say yes, Torah is going to say yes, but stay on the journey. And eventually the psalmist and the prophets begin to say, I'm not so sure. Uh, Psalm 40, the psalmist says, uh, sacrifice and burnt offering for sin you have not required. You've opened my ears. And then Hosea speaking in the name of Yahweh says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And this is what Jesus quotes not once but twice to the Pharisees. So that's a, I, I mean I just gave you a, I just gave you a ton of stuff in about whatever ten minutes, but that's that I think is that should give you some hints of what I think are the best way to approach Genesis twenty two, um, and then and then uh, uh, capital punishment is just a preservation of that practice of human sacrifice. Every study, every any kind of study tells you it's not a deterrent, it's not efficient, it is expensive, it's not reliable, but it's a way that we keep the ritualized collective killing of a scapegoated victim present within our society. And it's long long overdue. I don't know how people are going to hear this. I'm going to say something. Some of you might not like it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, there are three kinds of states that practice capital punishment. Totalitarian states, Islamic states, United States. It really is time for the United States of America to join the community of civilized nations and say, uh, we don't need this anymore. All it does is satisfy a bloodlust for ritualized killing. And so, you know, I mean, if, if Julius Jones, if I believed he was guilty, I would celebrate the fact that we're not executing him as a society. But I mean, the evidence is there's a preponderance of evidence that, that he is innocent. And so justice hasn't been achieved by his execution being staved. But as I said earlier, at least it means he lives to fight another day. And hopefully we can eventually move towards an exoneration, a proof of innocence, a pardon, and, and then some form of justice can be accomplished. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So, Brian, I'm curious, and you kind of went, I was going to throw the slow softball down the middle and ask you to connect the dots between Genesis 22 and Julius Jones, and you went right there. So in light of that, um, and it seems like, you know, your analysis is that 
capital punishment should be abolished. What do you think the posture, like when we think about like Christian discipleship, how should we, we be leading folks um, to respond to the fact that capital punishment is such uh, institution in so many uh, of our communities still across the United States. Yeah, like, I mean, what well, is the posture all, for Christians? We should just alert people. I don't know that that most Americans care, and this is sad, but we should alert them anyway to the fact that America is the outlier on this. That most Western nations, if not nearly all, either have formally uh, outlawed the practice, or they it may still exist for a few rare. Uh, crimes, but it's ne- it, in effect, it's never practiced, just is not practiced. Um, but for, and, and then of course, th- this is not some sort of like, oh, you know, this is a, this is a new modern liberal progressive move. You know, the idea that we should abolish capital punishment. And th- this was the position of the church for the first three centuries. So this, this is a 2000 year old Christian ethic. And you, we derive that from many ways from the teachings of Christ, but I, I tend to just lean in toward the cross and say, look, uh, the events of Good Friday were the state-sponsored execution of an innocent man, not only an innocent man, the innocent man, the very son of God. So if, if capital punishment, I said this earlier, can go that wrong, that it can go so wrong that it becomes the foundation for the worst crime possible, the murder of God, then we need to say, okay, uh, this cannot be a part of our criminal justice system because the potential for it to go wrong is, is so, I mean, the cross bears witness to that because, I mean, look, Jesus is crucified under the auspices of the Roman Empire with his commitment to justice and uh, the temple system, with its connection with Torah and revealed religion, and yet it all goes wrong. And and so this is where the cross, in fact, is shaming the principalities and powers. This is what Paul deals with. He says, you know, I mean, part of the idea of crucifixion was that it was the ultimate humiliation for the victim. I mean, among other things, the, the crucified victim is crucified naked. It's a shame that we can't really even bear today. That's why, and I understand, I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. I mean, I've got, I've got a crucifix here in front of me. Um, you know, Christ is still not depicted entirely naked because we just can't bear that shame. And so just p- to protect our own sense of modesty, we don't do that. But that's not what the Romans did. Uh, but Paul turns it around and he says, okay, was Christ the one that was put to shame in the crucifixion? No, it was the principalities and powers. And they were stripped of all pretense and shown that although they claim to be wise and just and therefore should rule the world, they are neither wise nor just. And the only thing that motivates them is a naked bid for power. And the cross exposes that. And we say, all right, so if the collective killing of state-sponsored execution is rooted in our naked bids for power, then it must be abandoned in the name of Jesus in the light of the cross. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I mean, I 
I just came from, in fact, I was telling Jared, I was running from um, Maasai University. I was uh, at a Black Student Union event speaking with students. And one of the things I said was, you know, it, it's quite wild um, the way that we are so committed in the U.S. Christians are committed in the U.S. to capital punishment. And at the same time, Black people understand the Jesus story quite well when it comes to being arrested at night brutalized and given state sanctioned executions and and I think that we yeah, um, this is James Cone's the cross and the lynching tree exactly right. yeah. and so yeah I think the commitment hopefully for the church that we can resist that we can organize that we can engage in civil disobedience that we can engage in a prophetic witness right that can um, just name the evil for what it is in the ways that mm -hmm. it literally goes counter to the gospel story yeah it's really important mm -hmm. And busy, so, so much of um, the gift of your your preaching, your writing, is that you're writing from the belly of the beast in a way, like um, and giving it a stomachache. Uh, there's um, so much of what um, you're exploring in the context of your ministry in in the middle of America, that because of the export of um, American Christianity speaks to so many of us uh, around the world. Your your latest book, you just mentioned James Cone. James Cone is quoted. Um, uh, Cornel West is quoted. Uh, Randy Woodley is quoted. Um, but this is almost the fallout of people who are coming to terms with the, the toxicity of white American Christianity um, as uh, that which cheerleads the death of of innocent people or any people um yeah. and there's this fallout happening at the moment would you sketch a, a little bit how you've responded in what to do when everything's on fire in terms of the pastoral project you have mm, where to start my goodness where to start I, can i just tell the story of how the book was conceived sure. yes please i just i just want to because uh, i think it's important so people that are maybe a little bit familiar with me and my wife, Perry, who's upstairs. She, I don't know if she might be lurking around here somewhere on the online. I don't know. <laughs> we were just upstairs together and I came down to do this. I'm not sure what she's doing, but we've taken to, uh, well, I've, I've discovered that my best self is my pilgrim self. In 2016, we walked the Camino de Santiago. If you don't know, this is this if you want the Francis route, which is the most famed of the routes, it's a 500-mile pilgrim route from Saint-Jean-Pierre de Port-France. Then you cross the Pyrenees into northern Spain, and 500 miles later, after walking this very long path, you arrive in Santiago de Compostela, Spain. We walked it in 2016, and though it's a cliche, it quite simply changed our life. It healed us, brought us into a better place. And so we've gone back periodically. We went back the next year, the following year in 2017 and walked a shorter route because we had less time from Porto, Portugal to Santiago. It's about 160 miles. In 2019, we had some more time. And so we did the big long 500 mile walk. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's a pilgrim route that was born about 1200 years ago, it was certainly popular a thousand years ago, maybe reached the height of its popularity 800 years ago when a half a million people a year were walking it. Medieval people walked these, well, medieval people, people went on pilgrimage to reach the cathedral where the uh, relics of the saints were present. And they went to venerate 
the relics of the saints for various reasons. Now, I'm not going to delve into that, the validity of that, and, and whether that's good or bad, or I have all kinds of ideas about that. But certainly in modern times, if all I want to do is venerate the relics of St. James and Santiago de Camostela, I can be there and I can be there in a day from anywhere in the world. I can just get on a plane and go. I certainly don't have to walk 500 miles to do that. Uh, so modern pilgrimage clearly is different. I know it's a cliche, but it's true of modern pilgrimage that it's not the destination that matters, it's the journey. And so just the, the, the walking, I mean, think about it. For 40 days and 40 nights, when Perry and I do this Francis round on the, San, on the Camino de Santiago, our life is reduced to the blessed simplicity of carrying everything we need on our back and doing nothing more than walking 12 to 15 miles a day ever westward. And everything slows down. We never move faster than foot speed. Modern life is so fast. We travel 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, or 500 miles an hour. But no, for 40 days, we travel two or three miles an hour at the most. And life is quiet and simple. And you begin to bring your soul into a contemplative state. And because it is an ancient Christian pilgrim route, you're constantly walking past churches, all of which are centuries old. Some of them are a millennium old. And it, make, it began to, in 2019, fall of 2019, two years ago, I was just very cognizant of the fact that once upon a time, there was a world where Christian faith was at the center of society. Now, to what degree that faith was healthy, to what degree that faith was uh, what is, originates with the apostles, that can be discussed and debated. I get all that. But at least Christian faith was present in the way, and the very, the very ethos of society lended to that. Well, that is long gone in Western culture. And there's so many challenges. I mean, it begins with maybe Descartes, and we can talk about that if we like. It begins in the 17th century. Nietzsche foresaw what was coming. I'd like to talk about that if we get a chance, mm. but it's in full force now. And we live in a time this culture or the society, it's thinking about this i'm thinking people are losing faith they christian and today sometimes very publicly among public figures but most of the time it's just happening among people that uh you know who just quietly no longer identify as a believing christian mm. i mean I, i've been pastor 40 years in one week 40 years in one week and uh that activates my pastor's heart within me and i want to help people and so i'm thinking about it we're about 200 into this long walk and we breeze 200 miles into our walk it's a hilltop village we find our lodging, our long walk for that day is over. I'm sitting outside our lodging. And I just thought, well, if I could walk with these people that are deconstructing, I'll use that word, that are deconstructing and almost ready to deconstruct right out of the faith, what would I want to say to them? If I could walk for them a day or two, 
for six hours or 12 hours, what would I say? And I sat there and I, I just pulled out my little notebook and I wrote, uh, actually what I wrote was what can we do when everything's on fire? And then we shortened it down when the book came out to when everything's on fire. But I, I wrote down, what can we do when everything's on fire? And I wrote down the idea for 11 chapters and pretty much stuck to it. Um, that's where it was born. It was born in that contemplative state. I didn't really get to start working on it, though. And this was in October of 2019. I'd already given it the name, the title, When Everything's on Fire. Didn't start until January of 2020 to actually write it. And by the time we hit March, whoo, I thought everything was on fire. And then everything was on fire. And so that's, that's, that's the origin of the book. And then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about from there. But that's I, I, people that know me. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the people that I hang out with a lot, they're probably just sick to death of me talking about the Camino. But <laughs> when something saves your soul, if you know what I mean by that, yeah, you're going to talk about it. I can't help talk about it. BC, I'm aware that um, the, the Camino for some is still haunted by um, Franco's fascism, really that um, there's um, uh, th these considerations and how you've written so beautifully about um, uh, Rana's quote, and we'll get there as well in terms of um, the, the future um, it is one of Christian mysticism um, and the importance of that, the, the importance of contempl the contemplative life and prayer. I mean, your prayer schools, which um, you, you've opened up to the world and literally hundreds of people join you every time you open up a, a prayer school so important to you. And yet there's um, uh, there's the reality of um, the unromanticized trauma and horror um, that our, our landscapes, our places um, that uh, we reside hold. And there was this quote that the publisher um, put out from the book that I want to give you permission to actually, it, it got some people really upset, like um, uh, a particular quote. And I, I want to give you the chance to say what it means to you. Um, but maybe I'll first ask, um, ask it in this term. It, are Drew and I progressive fundamentalists? What, 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 do, you, what do you mean by progressive well, fundamentalists? Of course what, you're not. What? Of course you're not. Oh, you're, you're not fundamentalist. You might be progressive, but you're not fundamentalist. <laughs> the key word of that quote is fundamentalist, not progressive. Fundamentalist. I'm both conservative and progressive. I'm conservative in the respect that I have for the long history of the church, for patristics, for tradition. I'm progressive in the fact that I recognize that all that needs to be said about God revealed in Christ has not been said. What I'm not is a fundamentalist of any variety, and I recommend that no one be a fundamentalist because that's and, and the problem. I'm aware that um, your rhetoric, your rhetoric is like um, incredible. Like anybody who's um, uh, uh, sat um, uh, under your preaching knows that the, the way you play with words, um, uh, the, what you are able to conjure up and uh, evoke um, in people's imagination is incredible. And yet um, the reality that for, for some who are seeking to combat um, the fascism that you're so concerned about in your nation and mine and rising around the world, we've got a number of friends joining us from um, Europe as well. And uh, the, the deep concern that uh, this white supremacist authoritarian looking for a strong man, which you, you've got several books now that address <laughs> the, hey, these look, direct I, things. I mean, I'm all in on resisting Christian nationalism. I, I think I'm fully vetted on this. I wrote yeah, this book, postcards right. from Babylon. I wrote a farewell <laughs> to Mars. Come on now. <laughs> 
So um, some people would go, BZ, is, is this a false equivalency of um, uh, uh, th those who are online doing some gatekeeping, maybe around political purity, and but to call them, uh, uh, to, to make an equivalent between the right and the left at the moment um, in your context and mine, um, in response to, for those who do really want to hear and don't just want to go, um, are you doctrinally pure, which um, I don't think any of us here have any interest in those kind of games, whether they're played by uh, religious types or um, politically engaged types. Um, what, what are you seeking to say that comes out in the book that those who have simply seen the memes might not have yet picked up? Well, if in regard to this statement that uh, I can't remember exactly the quote, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. I can't remember every single word I write in the book, <laughs> but, uh, but something to the effect, I, I said something to the effect in the book about, uh, you know, I can maybe find it because I think I know, I think I might know where it, it might take me a moment to find it though. Um, I think I've got it here. Yeah. Um, thank you, you know Twitter. What page it is? Uh, no, I, I've literally just uh, found it by your images on, on Twitter. Okay. Um, shall I read it? Sure. That'll the quote me. reads: "Progressive fundamentalism is just as false and destructive as conservative fundamentalism." Yeah. What that doesn't say is that in the present current moment, I mean, November seventeenth, you know, about eight ten p.m. Central Time, that. Political progressivism is just as dangerous as political conservatism. First of all, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about theology. Secondly, the emphasis hmm. isn't on a particular moment. The emphasis is on once you become a fundamentalist and your allegiance is to an ide ideology and not to Christ himself. See, what happens is if you are committed to a progressive or conservative, I don't care, you pick which one it is, ideology, you don't care about an if you let's pick one let's let's say let's say you are a conservative well, can, let's take it out of the abstract because um you're a dear friend let, let me, finish, let me you... finish this point you're, you're, yeah, on, yeah, if you're sure. on the right you don't fear an attack from the left you only a, a fear attack from the right if you're on the left you don't care about an attack from the right you only care about attack on the left. And so what that does is it moves you to the cruel extreme edges, not out of an ethic, not out of love, but out of a commitment to an ideology. And that is not what it means to follow Jesus. Mm. And, and that's why I wanted to, because um, uh, I, I know your love for me, you know, my love for you. Um, but I, like, I'm a leftist and i mean that as an intellectual tradition. i mean if, like, if you uh, go I mean, through if you ask me question by question by question about a particular political moment that is now i mean mm. i'm pretty sure i'm going to come up on the left almost all the time maybe all the time i don't know but, but <laughs> my allegiance isn't to that ideology my allegiance sure. is to christ and that's not empty rhetoric that's true yes yeah and <laughs> uh, i i wonder I, I think for me part of um you know, Martin Luther King identified as a, a um, democratic socialist, um, not in terms of the party, but in terms of the uh, practice of democracy, um, uh, whether we're talking Karl Barth. Where, I mean, we, we don't need to go through the intellectual tradition of, um, uh, but the, the healthcare in my country and some of us are uh, joining us. I see our brother 
uh, David Armstrong um, from Belfast. Uh, those in um, Ireland and uh, in the UK um, will know that um, the healthcare that we have, that the US um, doesn't participate um, in those same realities is a result um, of the tradition of, and I, I wonder, let me finish my sentence, of um, the Christian left, like uh, um, literally the uh, Labour Party in the UK grew out of the Wesleyan revivals. And I wonder if we, if we can't hold those um, identities loosely um, in light of our baptisms and know that we are coming from somewhere um, so we can love people from that place. Like hopefully um, uh, my practice of loving those who, who hold different politics to myself does look like Jesus. Um, and I wonder if some of the concern for some, I because I know you're not saying this of the um, uh, you know the the centrist kind of like neither this like you, you're not calling us to um, I, uh, kind I'm of not, ignore this moment in history. Yeah, and, I'm a revolutionary Christian. I'm not a centrist. Yeah, I don't. I don't even care to be plotted on that grid. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I mean, I'm a notorious non-joiner. Jared, I'm going to join a movement or an ideology. I've given all of my allegiance to Christ. I don't have any spare left over to give to some other movement. I just, I, that's, that's not empty rhetoric for me because as Kierkegaard alerted us, the crowd is untruth. And I just, I get nervous about joining a crowd because then it turns into a crowd. And the crowd is untruth. And I don't, I don't think that in general, I don't think for a second that the left is somehow more immune to becoming a crowd of untruth than the right is. So that's mm -hmm. why I'm just not going to pledge my allegiance to any crowd. I'll pledge my allegiance to Christ. That may lead me far left, far right. Probably not. But <laughs> you see what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and so it that's is. not a cop out. Yeah. In yeah. fact, that is a commitment that has cost me dearly to follow yeah. Jesus, all right, in St. Joseph, Missouri, and say that once we start following Christ, uh, waging war is incompatible with following Christ. That cost me greatly. That's right. Okay, so, uh, but if you want me to join your team and click all and check all the boxes, I've not joined any team, and I'm not going to. <laughs> it's just, it's, I'm just going to be stubborn about that, so. Yeah. No, so I appreciate if, if people want to misunderstand me, they can. If people okay. <laughs> want to engage with me in bad faith, they can. Uh, that's why God gave us the mute button. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I wonder though, like, because I mean, I, I hear you and I'm with you in that sense that, you know, I think um, it's too easily we fall into ideological commitments we claim jesus but we're really just committed to ideological commitments yeah. but i do think like even folks that maybe want to hear maybe i mean they may hear it as equivocating right and i think that that's the how do we both name the danger of ideological commitments that deter us and um and domesticate our discipleship and commitments to Jesus. And at the same time, like, I don't know, it's hard for me as, cause I may even think I had a conversation yesterday with a colleague um, on my campus. We were having conversations in my department about um, how to engage students around um, racism and especially with the climate of what all the conversations are going on, how can we have healthy conversations? 
And one of my colleagues said, he said, you know, well, our white male students really need um, a different kind of role models. And so they said that, you know, they're not going to hear all the people. So we need to give them a conservative option that's that's friendlier than, you know, than the and more intellectually honest than some of the conservative voices that they have already. And I think that, you know, and I just pushed back almost immediately because, you know, in some ways creating in that context, a left and a right in terms of actual racial oppression and harm that's being done seems uh, unhelpful. And so as a black person, like I'm very conscious of the fact that right now in our society, um, the conservative movement is death dealing for my community, right? Mm. And I think that's, I guess, so I think intellectually you're right, but if we can't explicitly in our moments also help people see, like, which I think you just did, right? That that what we're not talking about is equivocating as if, but that there is a danger that can become all kinds of stuff, um, yeah. but but that there's, there is something alive right now that is death dealing for my community well, in a unique here's way. What I'll say. Here's what I'll say, Drew. Um, I'm not equivocating. I've written 10 books. Yeah. Three forthcoming. Yeah. People can read them right. and find out where I'm coming from. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is uh, those that say, oh, Brian's a conservative. Ask the conservatives. Those that say Brian's a progressive. Ask the progressives. They both throw me out of their party. So <laughs> I'm left on my own any way I go. And I'm fine with that because I simply am not interested in belonging to an ideology. Because what happens is this. The problem with the Christian right and the Christian left, and I'm speaking primarily theological, but I know it has it bleeds over into the, into the political realm. The problem with the Christian right and the Christian left is that Christian gets reduced to adjective duty in service to the all-important political noun. And then Jesus is just kind of trotted out as a mascot. Mm -hmm. This is why Karl Barth says, in the context of 1930s Germany, God cannot serve... God can only rule, which by which he means, he doesn't mean that God can't in Christ be a servant because that is in fact what happens. Rather, he's saying in that context, God cannot serve some other political interest because he has his own called the kingdom or the politics of God. But once we begin to uh, aggressively identify as I'm right, I'm left, and then you just want Jesus to come along and confirm the, the right and left, because then when the pressure comes, because you don't want to get attacked from your the, the right flank if you're on the right or the left flank if you're on the left, then you keep moving to the edges. And I'm pretty sure that at some point you leave the Jesus way of love and kindness and mercy in order to line up with the ideology. And that's all I have to say on that. Mm. Yeah, I was reminded that... Um... Uh, Nadi Bolsweber recently um, uh, tweeted that Pope Pius XI established Christ the King Sunday, which is this Sunday for, for those who are listening live, um, to counter what he uh, regarded as the um, creeping um, fascism that was um, uh, taking over Europe at the time. And I think this is why this conversation is so important, BZ. You, you have so much to say, and the, um, the dynamics of... Um, doctrine doctrinal purity games and gatekeeping or political purity games and gatekeeping particularly on social media are so real 
so destructive and get in the way of the real work. I wonder if ultimately for all of us, um, politics isn't what we talk about, it's what we embody and what we embody with others. And at the end of the day, like it's um, uh, come and see how any of us live and you'll really see our politics despite <laughs> what, we, what we're saying. And I wonder if some of the... Um, uh, some of the nature of social media itself, and I know you've talked about this at length, um, can't foster the um, contemplative life that would allow us the space to ask these deep questions and be able to hold convictions in such ways that we do um, love those whom are our enemies. Um, and that's, that's the work for all of yeah, us, right? I mean, come see how we live. That's origins counter to the challenge of Celsius. And uh, that's a that's that's the that's the ultimate apologetic, and there's it takes a lot of boldness for Origin to do that. But here's how bold I am: I would say, come see Word of Life, mm -hmm. come see Word of Life, not from a yeah. distance, not from you trying to figure out what Word of Life is like from BZ's Twitter account. Come <laughs> see the 40 years plus one week aged old congregation that is word of life. It is a real congregation in the middle of America that has drawn people from not any one particular ideological community where they are learning to walk in the kingdom way of kindness and love and become more and more like Jesus along the journey but we don't have a ideological purity test for them to show up. I, I mean, the, the, the point is, Jesus, I mean, look, everybody will want to say, well, isn't that cool that Jesus, you know, hung out with the tax collectors and sinners? As if tax collectors were like cool sinners. Tax collectors were not cool <laughs> sinners, but they were, were agents for the empire that got their position because they bid the highest for the for that particular uh, what do they call it? The, the tax they, they had that they bid okay I can bring X amount of tax from this yeah. region and they did it through extortion and they would go into you know you have to you have to pick you have to picture these people coming into somebody's business and go you got a nice business here It'd be a shame if something happened to it I'm yeah. going to need you know so many more shekels out of you. And they're extorting not just to give it to the empire as Jews who are already betraying their people, but they're enriching themselves in the process. These are these are what you call evil oppressors. And Jesus mm. would eat with them. Now, does he expect them to change? Of course he does. Christ expects all of us to change. His first, his first sermon is the kingdom of God is within reach. Repent, rethink everything, and believe the good news. But Jesus. The, the first qualification for Jesus sharing his table with you is you are willing to share it with him. Mm -hmm. And there you go. So um, Jesus hung out with, with not just the cool sinners, he hung out with the massively uncool sinners too. Mm -hmm. All right. So Brian, one of the things obviously are, we like to have conversations around scripture and to engage people's story. You've already been on um, the podcast before. Um, so a slightly different question that we would normally ask, which is, um, how have you been encountering the scriptures more presently? Um, and what kind of practices you have as you engage, just thinking about 
at this point in your story, how are you engaging um, the Holy Scriptures? Well, <clears throat> I've always loved the Scriptures. Uh, I have my story of having, of in midlife, learning how to pray well, but I've always loved the Bible. Um, I have a chapter in the book called The Grace of Second Naivete. I can't remember what chapter number it is. Number, number 10, next to last chapter. Um, and a good way of talking about that would be talk, to talk about my relationship with the Bible. I had a very dramatic encounter with Christ when I was 15. I was kind of a high school Zeppelin freak. Everybody called me Fry. I was a long way from being a Jesus follower. And I had this very dramatic Damascus Road-like encounter with Christ. And, and uh, it freaked everybody out, including the teachers and the principal and everybody. And they would say, Fry, I can't believe what happened to you. And I said, I know, right? <laughs> Surprised me too, but it happened. And immediately I loved the scriptures. And to read the Bible every morning is just my habit. It's my practice. It's not hard for me. Um, to this day, it fascinates me. For the first, when I say several years, I actually mean several decades I read the Bible more or less at a kind of literal level. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't an absolute literalist. I was probably smart enough to go, there is metaphor, there is allegory, but I didn't trouble myself much with it. And so I took it at face value. But in midlife, you know, that was no longer tenable. Now, if a person can go their whole life and read the Bible on kind of a literal level, I'm not here to dissuade them of it. So be it fine. But many of us, especially here in late modernity, that is just, you can't do that. And so along the way, I learned how to read the Bible differently, more analytically. And for me, this was never, this was never a thing that induced a crisis of faith. In fact, I loved it. And so I learned about documentary hypothesis, and I learned my, you know, JDEP, and I learned about the Yahweh source, <laughs> and the Deuteronomy source, and the Elohim source, and the priestly source, and I found it all fascinating. I found it fascinating. Okay, you have the Yahweh and the Elohim accounts of creation. That's why you got Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But when you get to Genesis 6 and the Noah, Noah flood story, they decided rather than to have two accounts, they would kind of try to mesh them into one and that's why it reads so clunky because you actually have two stories they're trying that they tried to put together as one story and it doesn't read very easily and I learned all of that and then I get into the New Testament and I learn about oh there might be a Q source which by the way has nothing to do with QAnon okay I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> uh, the Q just source the Quella the Quella that apparently the synoptics Matthew Mark Luke and John Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a common source of Jesus quotations that they're drawing upon. I found all of that fascinating. And so, you know, I'm learning uh, historical critical readings. I'm learning textual criticism. I'm learning documentary hypothesis. You know, I, I like all of that. But here's the thing. Do I want to read my Bible like that forever? I think it was a necessary, for me anyway, uh, process and period to go through. And I learned it. I do. I could sit around and talk to you all about it, but I don't find that what I want to do in the morning, uh, that, that I carry that with me. I have that knowledge. It operates in the background. It's there. I can draw upon it when I want, but rather now I would rather be re-enchanted. Um, uh, I can demythologize with 
the best of them, I think, but I kind of want to mythologize. I want to, I want to do, I want to enter in what the Paul Ruclair calls the second naivete, which could be mm. a second naivete or it could be a third movement. So that I started as a literal with a literal reading and then an analytical reading, but now more of a mystical reading. So I can read that, you know, about the conquest of Canaan. And look, I, you know, so so is 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 this is this biblical endorsement of a genocide? Well, no. I mean, I can I can do the Brueggemann stuff, and I can work with you on that. And I can tell you, first of all, it probably didn't happen anyway. This is Israel mm. during the Babylonian captivity, telling their story with a certain agenda. I know all of that, and I can do that. But I also know there are walls that need to come down, and there are giants that need to be slain. And mm. I just want to kind of read that my scripture and go you know, I belong to the people that trust God that walls can fall down and giants can be slain because that needs to happen. So I'm reading today again in a not a childish way, but I've returned to a more childlike way. One of the things I started doing was just for my reading, I started reading again the King James Bible. Not that the King James isn't the superior translation because it's not the superior English translation of the Holy Scriptures, but it is poetic. And it reminds me that it is mythical literature in some places. Uh, and so it, it helps me kind of settle into a different way of reading and looking for the mystical and looking for the mystery. And by the way, you know, what, what in Catholic spiritual formation is called Lectio Divina is in some ways what we charismatics have just been doing. That's right. <laughs> oh, what you're saying is that God can speak to you through the scriptures. Well, we've always believed that. And so I, I come to the scriptures and expect God to speak to me. I've just gotten done reading this book, Jonathan Martin's new manuscript on the Emmaus Road, but I just read it today. But um, last week, just in my own scripture reading, I was I just landed there in, in that passage there in Luke 24. And I tell you, I was with Jesus. Mm -hmm. I was on the Emmaus Road. There was Cleopas mm -hmm. and the other disciple was BZ. And I, I tumbled into that story. And I was, I was despondent. And I, I was telling Jesus why it had all gone wrong because Jesus was dead. <laughs> and then Jesus, unbeknownst to me, begins to talk to me and says, oh, really? Tell me more. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then he begins to open the scriptures to me. And then I sit with Jesus at table. And he, he presumes the role of host. And he takes the bread. And he blesses it. And he breaks it. And he gives it. And I, oh, I see him. And then he's gone, but the bread stays right. I was in that story. It wasn't me reading it as a, you know, trying to be a scholar or anything like that. I was, I was the other disciple with Cleopas and uh, it, it was good for my soul to walk with Jesus on the man's road. So that's how I'm reading scripture today. Like that. Yeah. yeah. And you know, there's a story I'm maybe, you know, I, I imagine many preachers have heard, you know, they talk about, I don't know, what your experience was in high school, uh, but, um, you know, 
I think, I don't know what grade it was, maybe ninth grade, you dissect frogs, right? And they talk about open up the frog and dissecting the frog and, you know, learning about all the different parts um, um, of the frog. Um, and at the end, though, as much as all the information that you've gained from it, you actually are sitting before a dead frog, right? <laughs> um, and what does it mean to then come and encounter then a living frog and, and what the difference is between that living frog and the dead frog? And I certainly remember my experience, which it still is quite meaningful to think about all the different tools and analytical ways that folks have engaged the scriptures, but to also not lose sight of trying to um, encounter God, hear from God, be in the presence and awareness of God, um, and how important that is for our relationship and our lives. And the, the yeah, yeah, I think mm. that's that's really powerful as we come to the text. And I'm, I'm so aware, um, BZ, we're joined by a, a number of friends um, who, uh, you know, whether it's um, uh, Rich Viotis in New York or um, Brad coming to us from Canada or um, Father Ken, um, Tanner, like uh, all of you, Ken, I hope I'm not giving anything away, but all of you, at least pastorally, and some of you um, in writing have uh, projects which are speaking to this particular moment yeah. um like the similar the way that um in brad's new book uh the the importance of emmaus road um like these kind of imagery and, and metaphor it, it seems like there is a pastoral moment that's requiring this of people bz um uh, brad's book on uh well it's a more christ-like reading of scripture more christ-like word that's word. the name of it, right brad uh-huh. it's, it's really good. Yeah, it is. It's really good. Uh, can, can I can I read something to you? Please, please. Yeah, um, yeah. Some, some of you heard this. I know Brad's heard this, but you know Brad's just one of my pals. So th- I had to find it. It's in one of my. It's in the book centers in the hands of a loving God. It's um, it's a poem I wrote, and this is I think the I think the best thing I have about how to approach the Bible is this. And it, I, Drew's dissecting the frog thing reminded me of it because I actually have a line like that in the poem. Uh, if you can see over my shoulder, there's a hickory rocker back there. One winter night, I don't know, a few years ago, I just was thinking about, okay, the Bible, how should we read the Bible? And this just sort of flow. I mean, it took me less than probably 20 minutes to write this poem. I'm going to read it to you. Reading the Bible right. It's a story. We're telling news here, keeping alive an ancient epic, the grand narrative of paradise lost and paradise regained, the greatest once upon time tale ever told, the beautiful story which moves relentlessly toward they lived happily ever after. Never, never, never forget that before it's anything else, it's a story. So let the story live and breathe, enthrall and enchant. Don't rip its guts out and leave it lifeless on the dissecting table. Don't make it something it's really not, a catalog of wished for promises, an encyclopedia of God facts, a law journal of divine edicts, a how-to for do-it-yourselfers. 
Find the promises, learn the facts, heed the laws, live the lessons, but don't forget the story. Learn to read the book for what it is, God's great, big, wild, wonderful, surprise-ending love story. Let there be wonder. Let there be mystery. Let there be tragedy. Let there be heartbreak. Let there be suspense. Let there be surprise. Let it be earthy and human. Let it be celestial and divine. Let it be what it is, and don't try to make it perfect where it's not. This fantastic story of creation, alienation, devastation, incarnation, salvation, restoration, with its cast of thousands, more like a Tolstoy novel than a thousand page sermon. It's a story because we're saved not by ideas, but by events. Here's a plot line for you, death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, it's a story, not a plan, not an ology or ism, but a story. And it's an amalgamated patchwork story told in mixed medium, narration, history, genealogy, prophecy, poetry, parable, psalm, song, sermon, dream and vision, memoir and letter. So understand the medium and don't try so hard to miss the point. Try to learn what matters and what doesn't. It's not where and when Job lived, but what Job learned in his painful odyssey and poetic theodicy. It's not how many cubits of water you need to put Everest under a flood, but why the world was so dirty that it needed such a big bath. Trying to find Noah's Ark instead of trying to rid the world of violence really is an exercise in missing the point. Speaking of missing the point, it's not that a snake talked, but what the damn thing said. Because even though I've never met a talking snake, I've sure had serpentine thoughts crawl through my head. Literalism is a kind of escapism by which you move out of the crosshairs of the probing questions. But parable and metaphor have a way of knocking us to the floor. Prose flattened literalism makes the story small, time confined and irrelevant, but poetry and allegory travel through time and space to get in our face. Inert facts are easy enough to set on the shelf, but the story well told will haunt you. Ah, the story well told, that's what is needed. It's time for the story to bust out of the cage and take the stage and demand a hearing once again. It's a story, I tell you. And if you allow the story to seep into your life so that the story begins to weave into your story, that's when at last you're reading the Bible right. Amen. All that's, right. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's powerful. About reading the Bible. Yeah, that's Woo. powerful. Yeah. That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, just one line that stuck out to me, I was thinking, because um, Tabitha did mention um, just also like the, you know, not dismissing, obviously, when we're wrestling with scriptures that, you know, obviously the conquest story hits differently for different communities mm -hmm. or, you know, Paul's slaves obey your masters has hit differently, right, from my community. And so, um, you had that line, don't make it perfect where it's not, right? Um, and an invitation to struggle with it, to talk back, to wrestle, sometimes even needing to set it aside for a little while, right? Um, that that we can engage it in that kind of way um, in debate. Well, the conquest which... story of a group of Mexicans that crossed the Rio Grande and God conquers the mighty empire before their advance. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the way to read it. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, but yeah, I really appreciate that. That's good. So good. And basically, we could go at this a whole time, but we're we're um, seeking uh, to maybe follow Jesus. So maybe we should share you with others. Some um, we'd love to open it up for 
Q and A time for for others. Um, this is incredibly rich. We love it when we hang out. Thanks for um, doing this, and um, thank you for your work and witness. We're we're just so encouraged by you, and uh, um, please please keep pumping them out because um, it's a gift. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.